This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The isolation, worry, and loss brought on by the pandemic magnifies emotional struggles. Psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb says there's a huge mind-body connection, but many people don't recognize the need to address the toll stress takes. What we do with our emotional health is we say, yeah, maybe I'm feeling a little bit sad or I'm anxious, but it's not that bad. I have a roof over my head, I have food on the table, so it's not that bad. And they don't reach out until they're having the equivalent of, let's say, an emotional heart attack. You know, If you're having chest pain, you'll probably go get it checked out before you have the heart attack. With emotional health, people have the emotional equivalent of chest pain, but they don't get it checked out until they're in the throes of cardiac arrest. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Lori Gottlieb says we need to be kinder to ourselves while still taking responsibility for the role we play in our own life stories. And she says we need to cultivate connections with others to truly see ourselves. Gottlieb is a practicing psychotherapist, advice columnist, and co-host of the Dear Therapist podcast. Aspen Institute President Dan Porterfield speaks with Gottlieb about strategies to face problems and make the changes we want in our lives. Here's Porterfield. Laurie, thank you so much for being with us today. How are you? Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to join today. I am I am doing well in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles, so I'm not having the weather issues that I think many other people are experiencing right now. Um, but overall, um, you know, we're managing like everybody else. So maybe first, would you mind just winding back the clock and tell us a little bit about, well, about yourself and about how you got interested in becoming both a psychotherapist and an author? Yeah, well, I took probably one of the most circuitous routes possible to becoming a therapist. Um, when I, I've always been interested in story and the human condition. And I think I've just looked at it through different lenses. When I graduated from college, I worked first in film development, and then I worked at NBC um, developing television series. And one of the series that um, was just premiering that year that I got there um, for to jog people's memories was the show ER, if people remember that show. And um, I spent a lot of time in an actual emergency room with our consultant on the show who was an ER physician. And he kept saying to me, you know, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. Maybe you should go to medical school, which I thought was hilarious because I was a French major in college. But, um, but I was also very kind of math and sciencey, and I, I really liked the real stories more than the fictional stories. And so I, I did, I took all the classes, I applied to medical school, I went up to Stanford to medical school, and I started writing. And I was writing about all of the experiences. Um, you know, there's something, I think there's a privilege both as a therapist that I am now, but also when you're in medical school of really being with people in their lives in this very intimate way, and especially when they're at a very vulnerable place. And I ended up deciding that I really wanted to tell people stories. So I, I left to become a journalist where I spent a lot of time writing and telling people stories. And it was, it was later on when I decided that I really wanted to help people to edit their stories, where I feel like a lot of people have, we're all unreliable narrators and we all have this faulty narrative that we walk around with. And often that's what keeps us stuck. And so I decided I wanted to go to graduate school 
and become a therapist. And so I feel like I do all of those things in my work where I'm looking at people's lives through the lens of the stories they tell themselves about themselves, the stories they tell about others, what keeps them stuck. And I think all of those careers are, are very much related. Let's follow up for a second on this idea that we're the unreliable narrators of our own lives. Uh, you sound like somebody that studied literature and thought about storytelling. And what are the kinds of stories we tell ourselves that get in the way? We tell ourselves, we're unreliable in terms of the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Things like, I'm unlovable, or I can't trust anyone, or you know, whatever that story is, or I'm not good enough, or you know, we, we don't realize how much those stories are sort of playing in the background all the time, and they impact the choices and decisions we make on a daily basis. And then there are the stories we tell about others. And, and you know, it's kind of like in, in the book, and maybe you should talk to someone, I talk about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So when you tell your friend something that happened to you, here's what happened, and I'm so upset about this, your friend will generally offer idiot compassion. Basically, they say, yeah, that's terrible. They were wrong. You were right. That's idiot compassion. Um, but if you listen to your friends over time, you might start to hear that they're telling the same kinds of stories over and over, just in different contexts. It's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. We don't say that to our friends. Wise compassion is what a therapist offers. It's holding up a mirror to you to help you to see yourself in a way that maybe you haven't been willing or able to do. And that's where the editing of the story comes in. That's where this idea that the other person was wrong or the other person, you know, that, that, that sort of like the idea that you don't have a role in what happens in your experience that it's all about the other person. So, so many people, when they come to therapy, they want something to change, but generally what they want to change is other people. And what I think that we help them to do when we're editing their story is, you know, what is your role in this story? Um, is the protagonist moving forward or is the protagonist going in circles? Um, who are the major characters? Who are the minor characters? If you could write the story from the other person's perspective, what would that story look like and how much overlap would there be with yours? That's fascinating. Do, do you find that some people have to confront the fact that they have made themselves the hero of their story in a way that they need to re-examine? Yeah, the hero or the victim. Yeah. Um, you know, it could, it could go either way. Oh. And, and, you know, I, there's, I, you know, I often say that there, there's this saying in, in the therapy world that um, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes. Right. So, <laughs> so it's like, it's not saying that there aren't other problematic people out there in these people's lives. Um, it's, it's more about how do you respond to that? And are you exacerbating the situation in doing this dance with them that you've always done? And what if you change your dance steps? And what if you do something different that forces the other person to change their dance steps too? Um, so I think it's about looking at, at I think, um, accountability and, and being able to see the ways in which you're contributing to some of the difficulties in your life, the way that, that you know, we kind of get in our own ways that we're not aware of. So you've said in other you know, interviews that the experience of seeking out ther a therapist for yourself has influenced the way you understand or empathize with those seeking therapy that you work with now. Um, are you willing to say a little more about that? Yeah. 
So that's why in, in my book, I, I follow the lives of four very seemingly different patients. And then there's a fifth patient and that's me. And I chose to make myself both the clinician um, and to show myself as the patient, because I, I say at the beginning of the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card carrying member of the human race. And what I mean by that is I use my humanity in the room every minute of every session in order to help people. I'm not necessarily saying that my experience mirrors their experience, but I'm saying that I know what it's like to be a person in the world. And no. you can't get through life without struggle of some sort, big, small, whatever it is. Um, and I think that that using that experience and not being the clinician up on high, but being another human being in connection with this person who is coming to you um, makes all the difference in the outcome of their experience in, in terms of how they want to get through that struggle. How would you describe your own journey of learning as a therapist? Is it like other things or you have to do it and practice and reflect upon it to get better and better? Yeah, absolutely. I remember in medical school, it was see one, do one, teach one. So, you know, you see someone like get an IV set up, you do one, and then you teach it to someone else. I think in therapy, it's very much about finding your voice in the room. Um, you know, I think that when you're in grad school, you have this idea of the therapist in, in terms of, I think, maybe what the media has portrayed of, of therapists or that the therapist has to be this very removed kind of person. But in fact, I think it's, it's very relational. And I think that what you see, and, and you know, you see this in my book too, where um, I'm a rather new therapist at the time that the book takes place and I'm going to a very seasoned therapist and he brings his whole personality into the room. And I don't mean that he's crossing boundaries or he's being inappropriate in any way. I mean, he's just very authentic and very real and you get a sense of him as a person. And I, I think that that's really you know, a, a major ingredient in terms of the magic that happens in therapy. In fact, studies show that the most important factor in the success of someone's therapy is the relationship with your therapist. It matters more than the modality they're using, the number of years of experience, their theoretical orientation, all of that matters, but not as much as the relationship that's formed in that room. That's so important. We're in a time now with the COVID-19 pandemic where people are getting new modalities of therapy. And of course, there's new needs or at least intensified needs all over the place. How has the pandemic influenced the way you think about mental health you know, t today? Well, it's interesting. So all of, the, all of my sessions are now online sessions um, since last March. And originally I, I wasn't very excited about that. I was glad that people had access because you know, obviously the need had increased because of the situation, but also just people for their ongoing mental health needs needed to have that access. And I remember in, I read about this in the book that, that one of my colleagues said that doing therapy online is like doing therapy with a condom on. This was pre-pandemic where it just, you know, it just, it's not the same as sitting in a room face-to-face -face with another person with no distractions. You're, there, there's a, there's an energy to the room when you're face-to-face. -face. And I think we've all seen that with the pandemic, that there is a huge difference between spending time with somebody. I'm not just talking about therapy, but spending time with people in person versus being a tile on a screen. It's a very different experience. But I will say that there, there have been some really interesting 
unexpected outcomes um, of doing therapy online. And one of them is that there was a woman that I was seeing and I noticed, you know, you go into people's houses, right? And you don't get to do that when you're doing therapy in the normal situation. And she had this cello sitting in, it was always there in the room where she was doing her, her online therapy. And I asked her whose cello it was. And she said it was hers. And in fact, she played it quite a bit every day. And it was, and it was something from childhood and it was so related to so much of what we had talked about, but she had never thought to bring it up. So there are these ways in which there's this intimacy where you're in people's homes. I see, I've heard about people's, you know, partners. I've heard about people's children. And then sometimes they like come in, in the screen because they walk into the room by accident. And I, I see an interaction between like a mother and her child or, or, you know, a married couple. And I had never seen them actually interact. I'd only heard about it. So I, I think that there have been some, some really interesting developments. Um, and then there, there are certain things that you miss. Like I was seeing a couple and they were having some, some difficulty and all of a sudden she kind of softened toward him. And I said, what happened there? I had no idea why the sudden change had happened. And then she said, oh, he took my hand. But I didn't see that because it was under the Zoom screen. Oh. So I would have seen that in the room. So you, you lose some things, but I think you gain some things too. Do you think that in the field are therapists, you know, working with each other to share notes and successes and struggles as it relates to COVID or is everybody sort of doing their own thing busy? Is the field changing at all? Well, I mean, I think that first of all, most therapists have consultation groups anyway, where we discuss our cases weekly and we're continuing those online now. So that that's continuing. I think it can get very isolating in any circumstance, but especially during COVID when you're dealing with so many people and so much trauma and so much loss and so much grief and so much hardship and death and financial loss and um, illness and stress and worry. Um, and it's coming at you all day because so many people now who maybe ordinarily wouldn't have reached out have reached out. And I think that's a great thing, but it really does increase the stress, I think, on, on the caseload for therapists. Yeah. Um, in terms of how the field is changing, I think we're getting much more flexible about how we deliver mental health care. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that's really a good thing, ultimately. You've written about and talk about the hierarchy of pain. Will you say a little bit about that, as it, perhaps as it affects our lives now during COVID? Yeah. So I think that so many times people treat emotional health differently from how they treat physical health. And they, they rank it on a hierarchy in terms of whether they're going to reach out and actually get help. So when something happens with our physical health, we don't rank it. So it's not like I broke my arm, but it's not like I have stage four cancer. So, you know, I'm not going to go to the doctor. When you break your arm, you're going to go and you're going to get an x-ray and you're going to go get a cast. and You're going to take care of it, even though you don't have, let's say, a terminal illness, right? Right. Um, but what we do with our emotional health is we say, yeah, you know, I'm maybe I'm feeling a little bit sad or I'm anxious or I'm having some relational difficulties or I'm just feeling stuck or whatever it is. But, you know, it's not that bad. I have a roof over my head. I have food on the table. So it's not that bad. And they don't reach out. And so what happens is they don't reach out. People don't come to me often until they're having the equivalent of, let's say, an emotional heart attack. So it's not just, you know, if you're having chest pain, you'll probably go get it checked out before you have the heart attack. With emotional health, people have the emotional equivalent of chest pain, but they don't get it checked out until they're in the throes of cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. And that's when they come to me. And I think that's really unfortunate. And so what, what my mission is, and I'm really, I'm really trying to, first of all, 
remove the stigma and say, wait a minute, why is there stigma around this? This is part of our health. And there's no, there's not a big division that, you know, we think there's this division between emotional and physical health. There's a, a huge mind body connection. Um, and the other part of it is that I think like even, you know, on why I started this Dear Therapist podcast is I wanted people to actually hear people. So it's one thing to, to read my advice in my advice column in the Atlantic, but what you get in a podcast is you get to, it kind of democratizes this idea of therapy that people really, it also demystifies kind of what it is and what it isn't. Because a lot of people don't come to therapy because they think that you go to therapy, you talk about your childhood ad nauseum and you never leave and that's therapy. And therapy is not that. It's a really interactive conversation. It's very much focused on maybe how the past affects the present, but it's a really focused on the present and the future. And so in the podcast, people write in a letter, I have um, my co-host Guy Winch and I, um, we, he's the, the TED advice columnist, I'm the Atlantic advice columnist, and we team up and, and basically they get two therapists for the price of one and we do a session with them and you get to hear how we talk people through their everyday problems and then we give advice at the end that they have one week to try out. And they come back and they report it. You hear it all in one episode. But I think people, listeners can learn so much about themselves from hearing how other people are talked through their problem and then whether the advice works, how it works, what works, what doesn't and why. And so I think that that helps people to understand what therapy is, what therapy isn't, and maybe helps them to see, oh, I might wanna reach out because this is how it could help me. That, that is so fascinating the way you've chosen to do that. Um, do you feel as if your, your therapy self and your, I'll just call it, communicator self or um, writer self? Are, are, uh, are there differences? Are they in dialogue with each other sometimes? Oh, I think they're very much in conversation with, with each other. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like what I'm doing is, is simply changing the medium. So what I do in the therapy room is very similar to what I do on the podcast, to what I do in my books, to what I do in my advice column. It's the same orientation. It's the same philosophy. It's the same way of interacting with people. I'm just presenting it in different formats so that I reach as many people as possible so that we can, again, really make this a normative part of our lives. Yeah. Do you think of yourself as a, uh, in the, the part, the part that's, that's writing and developing this public voice that's so influential, um, do you think of yourself as an advocate for people or for the field? Or do you think of yourself as a health communicator? Or, or like what label do you attach to what it means to be th th this sort of practice-oriented educator for so many people? I think what I really want to do is to help people to live better lives. And I think that so many people feel isolated in their struggles. Um, you know, they, they feel like I'm the only one who's experiencing this or, um, you know, they, they don't realize how we are all more the same than we are different. And I want people to be able to reach out because I think when you feel isolated, you're not going to change. You're not going to move or grow or learn. And this is, a, this is something that we do throughout our lifetimes. This is not something like in one discrete period of your life. I think that we're learning about ourselves and about relationship and about how do we love and be loved throughout our lives in different ways and at different stages. Yeah. And when people are not talking about that, they often are stuck and they're, they're depriving themselves of these very deep, rich connections that I think make our lives worthwhile. This isolation point kind of brings us back to COVID for a moment. Um, 
I, I certainly myself personally have never felt so isolated as this time has demanded. Um, and is, is that something you think many people are struggling with? Are there other things people are struggling with in the times of COVID that you, you know, that you want to reflect upon? I think that whatever they were struggling with before is often amplified during COVID. And I also think that there have been some unexpected benefits for certain people. An example might be people, who, couples who really didn't spend a lot of time with each other. For all of the all of the media pieces about you know couples are going crazy and and they don't have any time apart and all of that, I think that they're learning that they have to know how to communicate and they're learning how to communicate. They're learning that they have to talk about their needs. They have to talk. They have to be able to negotiate with each other better. And they're just learning to enjoy each other more because they no. don't have all of that outside distraction. Um, and so while that's not really a great setup for the long term, because it's really important that people have their own outside interests and friends, um, it's really important that I think what's been neglected in the the rushing the the rushedness of our lives um, has been we don't spend enough time with the people that we see it, that, that are in our own households. So parents and kids, of course, kids want to get back to school. Remote learning has been really, really challenging. But, you know, an unexpected benefit of that has been that um, their kids are talking to them more. And parents and kids are doing more with each other because they're not rushing around to a million different activities every day. So I think there's this balance that's being struck that hopefully people will take with them as we start to emerge from this. And, and people will say, wait a minute, I value some of these things that I had during this time. And I want to take that with me as we move forward. That's such an interesting mindset. You referred to change in one of your earlier responses. And it leads me just to ask this question that uh, it sounds like often that's the work you're doing with your, your clients is you're helping them uh, to, to identify and enact a change they're looking for. But change is so hard. What, you know, why is that? It's the reason that New Year's resolutions often don't last very long, um, because I think we look at change in a way that doesn't really reflect how change actually happens. So there's a chapter in the book called How Humans Change, and it outlines the various steps that occur before we even know that we're ready to make a change. And they're, you know, pre-contemplation where you don't even really know that you're that you're thinking about it, but sort of unconsciously it's percolating. There's contemplation where you're kind of thinking about it, but you're not ready to do anything. There's preparation. We're actually taking the steps to prepare for it. There's action where you're making the change. But then there's the most important phase of change, which is maintenance. And maintenance is how do we maintain that change? How do we keep that change going? And a lot of times what happens is people make a change. First of all, they don't go through all those other steps. So they're not really ready to make the change. Um, but then they don't know how to maintain the change. They, they, they make the change and they don't realize that built into the maintenance phase is that you will slip back. That's just going to happen. That's, that's what happens. But what happens the first time people slip back, they say, oh, that failed. Forget it. I can't make that change. You know, like I'm going to eat better. Or I'm going to exercise more. Or I'm not going to yell at my child or, you know, whatever it is. And the minute that they slip back into that old pattern, they think I failed. So I'm just going to give up. Um, but I think the other part of change that people don't understand is that with change comes loss because we as humans don't do well with uncertainty. And when we make a change, we are by definition moving into a place of uncertainty. We are giving up the familiar thing 
even if the familiar thing was unpleasant or miserable, we're still giving up the thing that we know for something that we don't quite know. And I think that a lot of people moving into that place of uncertainty slip back into the old familiar patterns because it's more comfortable. It feels more like home. I have a couple sort of lightning round type questions and then, and then one about the future. So is there something, that, you know, a single piece of advice, something concrete that you often suggest to people for improving our emotional health? I would say the most important thing that I want to call people's attention to is that they, they, to be kinder to themselves. Um, you know, often when I'm giving talks, I will say to people, who is the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Is it your partner? Lots of hands. You know, is it your child? Is it your sibling? Is it your mother? You know, is it your best friend? Um, lots of hands for all of those. But the person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves. And what we say to ourselves often isn't kind or true or useful. And so I had this therapy client who was so self-critical and she couldn't see it. And I said, listen, I want you to listen for that voice. And I want you to write down everything that you say to yourself in the course of a few days and just write it down and we'll talk about it next week. She comes back the next week. She's done her, her homework diligently and she starts to read and she says, I can't even read this. I am such a bully to myself. And there were things like she was typing an email. She made a typo and she said to herself, you're so stupid. You know, and if you, anyone else made that mistake, you wouldn't think that person is so stupid. She caught her reflection in a mirror and said, you look horrible, right? Anyone else who saw her would not think even remotely that she looked horrible. And so we have this running commentary going um, that's so self-critical. And I think that most of us are not even aware that it's there, but it informs every choice and decision that we make throughout the day. How we talk to ourselves matters. How we talk to ourselves matters, not only in terms of how we feel about ourselves, but how we, how we act in relation to others. And so I feel like, especially during COVID, people have been so hard on themselves. Like, you know, that, that I have to get this done and I have to do this and I have to juggle all of these different things that are happening. And what I would say to people is you're doing great. If you're getting up every day, maybe you're showering, put on some clothes. I count sweatpants as clothes, by the way. Um, just get out of whatever you were sleeping in and, um, and you know, eat your meals, maybe, maybe get some exercise, you know, take a walk um, and, and you made it through the day and everybody's in one piece. You're doing great. So I just think being kind to ourselves, people think if I'm kind to myself, I, I won't hold myself accountable. The opposite is true. If you self-flagellate, you won't be able to grow or change or move forward. You'll be so much more productive if you're kinder to yourself. Thank you so much. Most of my career, I've been a teacher. And uh, you know, when I reflect upon it, a lot of the good things I say to students really were things that a teacher said to me. And I'm kind of you know, quoting them without even you know, putting it in quotes. Um, you know, having good teachers helped me be, I hope, a good teacher. How about for you? Is there any, you know, advice that you've ever gotten from a therapist or insight that you got that you've almost adopted into your way of working with others? I think it's really about connection. I think, you you know, in, in not just in my work as a therapist, but I just think in the world, just, just the importance of connection. I think that growing up, um, a lot of us are taught that independence is so important. You know, it's all about like learning to be independent. And I think that what we should be teaching, you know, the gen like my child's generation and, and kids as they're growing up is, yes, you need to learn how to, how to do things on your own and have a sense of agency. 
but also you, you need to understand how important connection is in your life. Um, professionally and personally, and how much you learn about yourself and how much you grow in relation to others. I think that it's really in relation to others that we're truly revealed. We don't see ourselves as clearly unless we're really connecting with other people and we get that mirror, we get that feedback. Yeah. One last question. It has to do with the evolving field and world of therapy and self-care. There's so much talk now about self-care and we try to encourage one another to care for, for oneself. Um, do you, what do you think the future looks like if, if there's change coming for how our societies approach therapy and approach this concept of self-care? Well, I think that what we've realized through the pandemic is how important our emotional health is, that it's not optional, it's not an elective, right? No. Um, and, and I think that we've realized that, that in order to um, function in the world, and I mean, you know, it, it affects our lives personally, um, you know, on every level from the personal to the societal. And you can see what happens as a society when people are really struggling and, and how that comes out when they're really struggling in the ways that it can be really destructive. It can lead to hate, it can lead to, um, prejudice, it can lead to um, violence, it can lead to all kinds of misguided ideas. When people are really saying, I feel alone, I feel isolated, I don't feel a sense of belonging, I don't feel that I have a sense of purpose, I don't feel that I mean anything or that I have a sense of meaning, I don't feel that what I do matters. And so what do people do when they feel that way is there are all these different ways that they try to compensate for that. And, and it's very unhealthy, both again, on a personal level and on a societal level. And I think that we really need to understand that when people are taking care of their emotional health, it benefits everyone. It's not an individual endeavor. It's a, it's a societal and cultural endeavor. Thank you so much. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist and author of the bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. She writes The Atlantic's Dear Therapist advice column and co-hosts the Dear Therapist podcast. In 2019, her TED Talk, How Changing Your Story Can Change Your Life, was among the top 10 most watched of the year. Dan Porterfield is president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Shauna Lewis. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.